0: listening to campus purpose i'm cody cook and my guest today is john d'angelo the third also known as the anti-war war vet john what you been up to nothing
1: man i got uh, well i've been up to a bunch uh but nothing in the realm of like the uh political space um i got another baby on the way and buying a house um so i've been busy doing that and uh just enjoying enjoying having little kids
0: Gotcha. Now, is this baby going to be like dropped from a plane, or how are you going to do with this one? The last one was born on a sidewalk, I believe.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, well, we live on a uh, a nice, quiet road now, so we have been in talks with the um, the OB doc about uh, you know doing another road baby. I think we might be able to do it, um, but we'll we'll have to see. Uh, I'm afraid of heights, so I don't want to be present for any any yeah. airplane babies, but.
0: You don't want to have the baby parachute from a plane. <laughs> it
1: would be, it would be interesting.
0: I wonder, I wonder what they're, yeah. <laughs> I wonder what,
1: <laughs> I wonder what the birth certificate would say then.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, what if, okay. So let's, let, let's, let's, let's imagine a scenario here, John. Let's say that the plane uh, is flying along the U S Canada border mm. and uh, um how do we how do we do this? So then the the baby starts to be born in the in U.S., but then you catch it in Canada.
1: So oh, it doesn't. Yeah, because because of, of the the wind. Yeah. Well, I think it would probably qualify for dual citizenship, um, and because it would it would absolutely make headlines. Um, yeah. And ideally, if if we're you know the uh, the Canadian border, maybe I'm like fishing the Great Lakes, and. I... Uh, You know, that would be great. Yeah, Um, so yeah, we'll have to. It's definitely you know she's only 10 weeks, so. um, You know, we got a long way to go to plan this and. um, You know, that'll be the next thing on the agenda is figuring out. Flight patterns. and certificates.
0: Awesome. Well, I can't. I can't wait to see what happens. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to it. Congratulations. Thank you. So I I had you here today to not talk about uh, fun things, but. Um, what's going on in Afghanistan? Um, so you have a uh, background. You were a, the, you served in Afghanistan, um, and before you uh, became an anarchist <laughs> and decided to become since since become against war. Um, and you know I wanted to sort of talk to somebody who partly had been there, but also sort of shares some of my um, kind of libertarian sentiments and uh, and skepticism, and also my um, uh, some of my Christian values related to war. So, um, you know, as someone who was there and who's thought a lot about this war and and so, if somebody's listening to this later or doesn't really know what's going on, uh, we recently started pulling out of Afghanistan and basically uh, the Taliban essentially med- immediately came in and, and took it over. <laughs> so, um, so I guess what I want to know is from your perspective, what would you say our goal was in Afghanistan? Did we accomplish it? And then what went so wrong that the Taliban have basically taken over in a in very short order?
1: Well, the official like non PR, you know, heartwarming line is that we were occupying Afghanistan in the hopes of um, dismantling the safe haven that the Taliban offered to al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, uh, particularly after 9-11. And that was ultimately the justification for for being there militarily for 20 years um, in in various iterations. Um, But, you know, you'll hear a lot of people talk about all the great things we've done for infrastructure and girls going to school and you don't have to wear the burqa or the hijab if you're not feeling like it. Um, which is all just absolutely ridiculous, um, sort of like post hoc justification to make this war feel a little bit more, um, you know, palatable. I think to the average SUV Prius driving soccer mom, um,
0: you know, I- so, 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 sort of like in Iraq where uh, st- well, the real reason we went in was because of WMDs, but then we actually said, well, actually, it was to get rid of a dictator, right. Saddam Hussein.
1: Right. Well, or or even more so to, to um, you know, to remake Iraq, you know, because I, Saddam was always uh, central to the policy that he would be. Um, I think it started under uh, Clinton um, that there was an explicit policy that he would be uh, removed from power uh, at was the stated aim of American foreign policy in Iraq but it was never that we were going to remake iraq in our image and i think that sort of idea does run pretty parallel to what we've been trying to to say through the media in um many ways in afghanistan is like that we've we've remade this country into some you know shining example of democracy which is absolutely absurd um, and was never going to happen and was never going to be the case um, and is not what the people of Afghanistan would want or think of um, in terms of like a central governing authority um, and is, is is just I mean if if that's the stated aim of the you know, several thousand American dead, hundreds of thousands of civilian dead and trillions of dollars we've spent then you know there should be some criminal prosecutions but I don't you know I think that anyway so um.
0: Well so, so but what went wrong though? We were there for 20 years you were kind of part of the that mission to kind of help create infrastructure and, and keep things rolling um and you know you'd think in 20 years and, and giving all these weapons and all this funding and all this training um that we would have left uh the government the puppet government essentially that we created uh with some um ability to manage especially when you look at the the number of i think it was was it maybe 300,000 in the afghan security forces and like a, maybe a tenth of that, they're less. And as far as Taliban forces coming in, I, these numbers, are something something stuff I've listened to, I, I might have those wrong, but essentially the number of people that we had trained to hold Afghanistan was, you know, dwarfed the number of Taliban that were coming in. Uh, and we had all this time and, and yet this happened. So what, what, what went wrong, so to speak?
1: Well, well, so to the first point, the Afghan security forces has always been a central part of the policy in Afghanistan that we were going to train these guys up and equip them. And that they were going to you know, fight for um, their home country in our place so that we could eventually uh, have some sort of clean. Um, but secure break from the country. And if any politician who was involved with that planning or general took 15 minutes and watched Afghan National Army training with the US military, they would have thrown their hands up and called for the end of the policy right there because. The Afghan National Army I'd seen so um, I was a truck driver I know I've said this on the podcast before but just that people are listening to this in an isolated uh, way I was a truck driver and our job was fuel security so we would drive fuel from the main um, hub in uh, southwest Afghanistan Camp Leatherneck all the way up to Camp Edinburgh which remained uh, in the same province there and it's like I think it was like a hundred miles one way or something and we would stop in this little community called Shergazi and in Shirgazi we would park our trucks and sleep for the night often. We would drop fuel at the base there. And uh, there was a huge contingent of Afghan National Army that was consistently being trained. So we would see these guys training all the time. And it was like it was like an entertainment that we could look forward to every time we went on this, this convoy because they were just so absurd um, when they were being trained. So I have this one distinct memory. They were doing fire maneuvering. So they were in teams of four, fire team, and the uh marine infantrymen or presumably whoever was trying to teach them the positions and how to communicate and you know getting down prone on the ground and then communicating when you're prone and um so there's these guys in these like ill-fitting flak jackets and helmets with m16s and they're all like being silly and like talking to each other very like and i don't say this um to be insulting they were all like young guys like me but They were very childlike and playful and silly and just like it wasn't the military in my understanding of the military at 21 being in the Marines for a couple of years and like now fighting in Afghanistan. uh, These guys were just like, you know, having a ball and they were rolling on their backs and they were kicking their feet and they were throwing their rifles all over the place, which is like a big no, no. You you know, your rifles always got to be close and secure and yada, yada, yada. So they were, like, violating all of the norms that we took for granted as, like, this is how a military operates. Um, And we're just, like, kids hanging out. And the the truth is, I didn't know this at the time, but most of these kids in the Afghan National Army are just that, they're kids. And they're going into the Army because it is the most secure paycheck. And with the U.S. um, subsidizing so much of it, uh, the Afghan government was happy to pay these guys a, a salary to... You know put the uniform on and go and you know stand guard somewhere with the ANP, the afghan national police who was a little bit more codified and um you know had a, a more um legacy force but these these afghan national army guys th- there, there's been plenty of reporting about like whole divisions of ghost soldiers i think patrick Coburn did a bunch of work on that where like whole battalions of afghan national army never existed they were just fake names just to for some general to say that, you know, look at all the men under my command, never happened. And those work their ways into these estimates. So I have no idea how many people were in the Afghan national army or Afghan national security forces. Um, I don't know that anybody has a really good number on it. Um, But what I do know is that whatever um, percentage of that force was, you know, young, um, pragmatic paycheck chasers, they weren't going to be a hedge. As we've seen, uh, I don't think we we realize just how little of a hedge they'd be against the Taliban, but um, they weren't going to be effective against um, a, a bitterly experienced Taliban force who have been fighting guerrilla warfare for um, 20 years and had 10 years before that of being in power and operating in terms of, um, you know, military logistics and, and stuff like that. It, it's just Anyone who's been against this war has been saying from the beginning, but especially since like 2003, 2004, that this was just as Scott Horton's book, says it's a fool's errand. And it was something, it was a, a battle we were never going to win um, because there was no real objective except to keep the safe haven, you know, myth from from
0: happening. I mean, I, I always sort of wondered if, if if it was kind of more, um about having bases in certain places uh kind of keeping down uh certain kind of political um opponents but uh i don't know maybe also i mean israel i'm sure obviously we have a very friendly policy toward israel and i think that has to do with a lot of our interest in the middle east um yeah
1: afghanistan is one of those countries though like you know you can wrap your head around iraq in terms of israel right like they israel built the missile defense system because of Saddam and, you know, he's been much more, um, there's been much more fighting and threat from Iraq to Israel and vice versa than Afghanistan. Afghanistan is very much, and Scott Horton talks about this a lot, and I I just think it's like the perfect analogy, is it's kind of like the um, ruddy-cheeked, deep West Texan, um, in the Middle East, and it's texas sized and um, in many ways, not maybe not many ways, but in a few really fundamental ways uh, Texan in its culture, they're all armed, they're a warrior culture uh, from time from time's beginning, they know the the land and the layout there's these insane geographical obstacles that are impossible to overcome for uh, a normal military, and they have these factions of um you know, either ethnic, religious, political power, whatever, or all of them, um, all throughout the country that are, uh, completely at odds. And have like these longstanding grudges well before, I mean, some of these, these, um, ethnic, uh, relationships and, and animosities go back to like when there was a king. So, which, you know, was the, the seventies or whatever. Um, so, or the, yeah, I'd have to double check, um, but you know, it's just it's it's an intractable problem on multiple fronts, and the uh, the notion of the safe haven, um, particularly which has been sort of the, the cornerstone sort of the policy, has always been a bit of a farce. And um, you know, we really we really dropped the ball. If if our hope is that we don't let Afghanistan become um, uh, you know a safe haven for terror. We took the country with the Al-Qaeda forces post, immediately post 9-11, which numbered in like two to 400 guys. And maybe we kept Al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan for the last 20 years. But it turns out now that they number somewhere between 70 and 100,000 people. And they're all over Asia and North um, and, and uh, Central Africa. And you know that, that battle has been lost so profoundly, it's hard to really quantify.
0: So, I mean, when, we, when you talked about why the security forces um, sort of failed, it sounds like on some level they didn't take seriously what they were tasked to do, that it was a paycheck, right? And in that regard, it sounds like what we're talking about is sort of like, a, a, you know, what um, uh, with the, oh, I can't with uh, The, uh, the Mises, economist uh, Ludwig von Mises refers to as praxeology, that, um, you know, we have our motivations for why we do things. And whereas the Taliban seemed very motivated to come in and take over Afghanistan, the security forces were not that motivated to keep it. And, and on one level, that seems like it could be surprising because I think there are obviously going to be people in Afghanistan, people who are more secular, uh, people who maybe have seen some of the cruelty of the Taliban, women in particular, um, who would want the Taliban gone. even if they're not necessarily super positive on the United States, they would at least say, okay, well, you know, in a lot of ways, this is better, right? So I, I guess I, I'm curious as to why, um, why you think maybe our, our Western notion of freedom was not enough of a motivation for, uh, for some of these folks.
1: For the
0: populace? Well, yeah, and particularly these people who are in security forces who just essentially, in many cases, just dropped their weapons as soon as the Taliban came in and, and weren't even willing to, to fight.
1: I think the writing has been on the wall in Afghanistan since before I left in 2012. Um, I got there in late 2011 and left in early 2012. So, you know, the Afghan National Army has never had the uh, infrastructure or training or funding or equipment to be a legitimate hedge against um, a well-organized veteran combat force. I mean, that's... That's been pretty clear, and the uh, you know Kabul is a is a perfect example because they had uh, the defense minister had done this walkthrough with Ghani like three days ago, four days ago now, and uh, was showing him the but,
0: defenses. And this was, Ghani was the the form, the president who's left, right?
1: Right. Yeah. The uh, the now ousted or having fled Afghan president, but he was the president since like twenty seventeen or something, um, and. They had like a pretty a pretty significant uh, defense set up throughout the capital city um, for the encroaching Taliban and what they had assumed to be, you know, maybe maybe months down the road or a month down the road. But, um, you know, they the writing was on the wall intelligence from the U.S., I'm sure, had let them know that they were, um, you know, there was this growing force of Taliban that was coming their way and they had already captured all these cities and what have you kabul fell in like with like almost no no bloodshed it was it was um there was really no fight most of the afghan national army just fled and so even when they had some of that that military alamo infrastructure that you'd be hoping for they didn't have the will to fight because uh, ultimately like it's it's you're, you're fighting as a representative of a government that's Artificial and understood to be artificial from just about everybody, um, the the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan or whatever uh, has had a, always an extremely tenuous claim to power and legitimacy. And yeah, you know, the Taliban are are going to face that same problem politically. But this broader civil war in Afghanistan, um, you know, between these various factions like the the Northern Alliance and the Taliban, um, you know, Greater Pashtunistan and and areas in the south and in the north um that's not going to go away and the islamic republic um didn't didn't get all of the uh all of the necessary sort of uh, power players under their banner in support of them it's always sort of uh, felt i think in afghanistan for, and I've, I've been there one time um and and i just happen to follow it closely because it's of interest but um my understanding is that the sense has been as soon as the u.s leaves, particularly their, you know, our air support and intelligence and stuff. Once we're not dropping bombs and, and watching troop movements closely and um, stuff like that, uh, the, the Taliban or whatever, whatever other more legitimate, more powerful force rolls in um, is going to take, take over. And so I guess to answer your question succinctly, I I don't think the ANA really ever had much of a chance because I don't think the ANA was ever really much of an army.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So. um, I think it'd be safe to say that uh, you would argue that we shouldn't have been in Afghanistan to begin with, but kind of allowing that we were there and that we sort of created the situation um, and that leaving was going to create this power vacuum that some very dangerous people would likely try to fill um, which we could say the same thing about you know what happened in Iraq when we left um, so after jumping into this kind of whole quagmire some would argue that we have an obligation to stay to keep the peace uh, which it appears that that would mean that we'd have to stay there indefinitely <laughs> because we were there for 20 years and right. uh, didn't seem to have any impact so I mean what what were I mean do, does does that logic carrying weight with you that we had an obligation to stay, especially when you look at some people now who are uh, going to be damaged, especially by the relationship that they had with us um, while we were there. Like people, well, so people the inter- that, for example, the Taliban may now target, right? Yeah, the interpreters and stuff is
1: is an interesting situation, primarily because it's been understood, uh, just like in Iraq, that these people are really getting a raw end of the deal. And, um, they they deserve support and if they want to come to the u.s or you know uh, emigrate out of afghanistan that we should support them in that i mean we just spent a trillion dollars building schools for girls that will be empty or blown up or torn down and paving roads that are pockmarked with ied holes i think we could probably spend the capital on getting these these allies out of there but much like um which seems to be the sort of typical american practice uh in contemporary military terms we just, we just leave these people high and dry. And, and, you know, another anecdote from my time in Afghanistan, but, uh, just to sort of elucidate the point about the the Taliban and how ruthless they can be. <clears throat> there was this dude that, uh, he would sit outside the gate. He was given like clearance, um, to sit outside the, the gates at camp, camp Eddie, camp Edinburgh, where we would like finish our convoy and turn back around. And, uh, he would make these like, um, Basically, it was like French fries wrapped in like um, the traditional Afghan bread, like a like a burrito almost. Um, And he would put like hot sauce and stuff on it and spices. And uh, it was good. And he charged like twenty dollars U.S. for them. And we were all happy to pay it because we were flush with cash and hadn't had a warm meal. And um, he was a super friendly guy. He spoke English and um, whatever. He was making a killing selling French fries. And uh, they I, I didn't see it myself, but apparently the Taliban had come in the middle of the night and ripped him out of his bed and strung him up and, you know, executed him outside of Camp Eddie. And so, um, you know, they, they can be brutal to people that they view as uh, as uh, allies of uh, the West or NATO or ISAF or whatever. Uh, I think they do have a little bit of an incentive to use a lighter touch this time around. You know, um, in 2010, 11, 12, they were uh, slaughtering civilians in <laughs> Afghanistan. But um a a point that isn't cited nearly enough the afghan national army and the u s um or you know allied forces have been responsible for the majority of civilian deaths in the last few years um particularly under trump with the uh the you know these huge bombing campaigns and what what, what have you so um you know i think that there's it's if, if you just kind of take a step back from um the the ethnicity end and the countries and stuff. And you just imagine yourself in the shoes of this agrarian culture. You're probably illiterate. You understand your country's history broadly as ebbs and flows of conflict and uh, you yourself being a part of it. And, um, you know, there's this this rowdy religious right force um, and maybe you're you know, agnostic to the to the conflict. I think you'd still rather be um, under threat from your own countrymen and understand how to navigate those cultural and political situations than, um, you know, the political changing tides of the US and then whatever that looks like from the air, you know, as far as drone bombs go. So, you know, Trump gets an office and the gloves come off and we start bombing all over the place. You know, the, the average Pashtun Afghan uh, doesn't give a sh- about, uh, excuse me, um, for for swearing, but he, he, they don't care at all about the, um, you know, American politics, except as, as it relates to them. And, you know, they've been subject to extreme atrocities uh, over the last 20 years. And unfortunately, uh, at this point, having gotten involved the way that we did, I think we'll continue to suffer tragedies for for the foreseeable future.
0: Well, you talked about the Taliban wanting to have a lighter touch, and uh, they have promised that there won't be reprisals for those who've worked for, with the U.S. Um, and that they're going to be a little softer on women's issues. Maybe, um, they've promised. Uh, well, I don't, uh, ultimately, it's going to be a little softer if they do what they say they're going to do because they're talking about keeping letting girls stay in school, but then also, um, you know, any um, uh, journalists who are on television who are female will have to wear the full covering um and they you know they don't want uh, women working with men and you know so you know women can still work but there has to be an office where there's no men so that, um but so i guess I, as a two-part thing one is i mean do we trust them when they say this and two is uh the motivation for saying something like that you talked about that, that they have an incentive to use a softer touch and i think that they i think you're right about that um and I think it's two-part incentive. One is the international community they want to try to have better relations with, um, and two is um, there are obviously a lot of people in Afghanistan who would rather not see them in power, based on the fact that they were trying to flee and were holding on to landing gear on airplanes that were trying to fly- that were flying out of the uh, airport. Um, so perhaps part of the motivation for wanting to have a softer touch is to say to these people. Hey, it's okay. You know, obviously we're the Taliban. We're kind of extreme, but we're going to be lighter. We're going to be softer and you can live with it. And, and, and I think that's maybe the motivation of any government that is on a, you know, that's not on totally sure footing is to try to find ways to appeal to the people to make them feel like it's not that bad. You know, maybe it's not perfect, but it'll be fine. And it's, it's, I'd rather just deal with it than, than fight. Right. And so, um, I think that that's probably the motivation um, for wanting a softer touch. Maybe you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, but but I, I am also curious if you think that there's any reason to trust the Taliban will have a, a softer touch. I, I think
1: it. I think that they are now um, going to get to experience the same uh, tension, sort of sort of Damocles thing that all uh, people in power have to deal with, which is. Uh, um, They have these competing interests that they have to try to satisfy, one being um, legitimacy and, uh, you know, consolidating their authority uh, in the state (laughs) of Afghanistan and then um, maintaining their internal culture and and, uh, ethos that keeps, you know, the people, the Talib themselves, the students, uh, as they refer to themselves as you know loyal adherence to their to their rule because you know they don't they can't consolidate enough authority fast enough um that they can lose the loyalty of the people amongst them so um i don't know how this goes for them i don't know if they have a a long term um projection i'd love to hear like the scott alexander percentages um, on what he imagines will be, you know, a Taliban central government in 10 years or something. Um, But but, Afghanistan as a as a nation, like, you know, as we imagine the geographical borders between India, China, um, Tajikistan, Iran, Pakistan, uh, that is not like a, a hegemonic um, Populous by any means. I think we all understand that. Much like most of these um, Middle Eastern states, the borders are, in many ways, sort of um, not arbitrary but completely artificial, and so they don't really um, they don't really fall in line with manifest destiny, to say the least. So there's huge populations of people like the Hazaras and um, the the Balaki or uh, whatever down in the southwest. I mean, there's huge groups of people who have uh, long-standing resentment and um grudges with with the taliban and that isn't going to just fade away because now the us is gone if anything it's probably going to make it worse um so i think that the civil war has you know it, the end of this is still you know to be decided but the taliban have the claim at the moment and um and i think that you know whether they're going to be softer or not, they're certainly they certainly should say that they are, and clearly they have a pretty good plan in place on how to get you know their foot in the door and their seat on the throne. Um, you know, the, the, j- militarily speaking, they they've done a great job of capturing key points um, of entry into Afghanistan um, and you know surrounding these major cities without taking them until they have like the the ability to relative to American infrastructure and military presence. um, I think they've done a good job of like capturing and holding momentum in the last week or so. So we'll see what happens. I don't I I don't know what the outcome for the average school age girl or worker, female worker in Afghanistan is going to be. But I, I think it's important to recognize that. Even even mentioning it in terms of U.S. foreign policy in Afghanistan. It's a complete red herring and and an absolute absurdity on its face. We would never launch a war on those terms or for those issues. And if we were, we would be in almost every country in Southeast Asia, um, you know, Central Asia, Africa, um, because there are extremely different um, social and political and cultural norms. Uh, female genital mutilation is still, you know. Extremely common throughout many parts of the world, and it's horrible. And I, I, I don't, I feel very much for these these uh, people that are kind of caught in the middle here. But um, American foreign policy was never going to be the solution to um, longstanding religious observance in in a landlocked country in Central
0: Asia. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And, and a lot of these arguments that have been made in the past for why we should invade this country or that country have been we we'll look at the cruelty of the leaders or whatever and you're right yeah we, we would if we applied that consistently we would be everywhere and it, it's not feasible um although some might say yes we we're already in afghanistan and we kind of created the complicated situation to some extent and so maybe does, does that does that mean that we had an obligation to stay <laughs> until yeah yeah, yeah. yeah so I, i'm curious what you have to say about that because To me,
1: I think the only obligation uh, we would have politically would be to um, to Americans, and uh, you know we've made. That's sort of one of the nice things about having, uh, you know, being Joe Biden at the moment is that you have a bit of plausible deniability. He's already tried to use that a little bit by saying that he was hamstrung by this Taliban deal and had to honor it or whatever, which is hilarious. But um,
0: which he didn't exactly because he pushed it out a few months, right?
1: Right, right. But to say, like, well, I had to I had to pull out, you know, Trump already put me in this this situation. Um, sure. But. Uh, I, I think the idea of having an obligation to the Afghan government or the Afghan people is an absurdity, uh, you know, if if you're going to I mean, I don't know what metrics one would want to use, but. If you just think in terms of like, uh, you know, the standard of living and. um material comfort and safety of the average Afghan, especially in these hotly contested areas, um, are they better off having American uh, drone bombs um, subject to political will and, um, you know, blustery political interests every four years, potentially taking over and, you know, ripping apart their their homes? Um, Or are they better off like getting back at least to an Afghan centric power structure and letting that sort of does settle on its own, which has to be an inevitability unless we, you know, make Afghanistan the next uh, satellite state like Puerto Rico and we make it the 52nd state of the union. Um, I think, you know, our our obligation has to end somewhere. And I think 20 years and trillions of dollars um, is probably sufficient because every passing day is just another day that we're pushing off the inevitable uh, sort of conclusion, whatever that is, that's going to come with this Afghan civil war.
0: Yeah, you know, so yes, kind of how I would look at it. I mean, so from a Christian perspective, um, I support nonviolence all the time. So there's <laughs> at every point, I feel like everything we've done has, has been wrong. But right. um, but from a kind of a political or libertarian kind of, especially libertarian minded perspective, I mean, I do think that when you have wronged someone, you um, you have an obligation to try to make restitution. And so I guess the question is. Um, when, when you when you look at the balance sheet in Afghanistan, um, have we been a net negative or a net positive? And what do we owe if we're in the negative, right? If we're in the red, what is it that we owe to try to make things right? And I think maybe at minimum, the people that we made promises to and who put themselves in the line for us, maybe we have some obligation to those people, the interpreters, people who worked with us there, uh, who could be in serious danger um, but I think you're absolutely right, though, because there's not necessarily a right answer. Ultimately, if we are trying to protect people uh, from the Taliban or from whatever terrorist group wants to come in, that ultimately means we stay there forever because they're not willing to take the reins. Um, and so it, really, it makes it seem like there's really not a, a really satisfactory answer that maybe leaving was the best answer, but it was still not a good answer right it was like you know we, we're here already nothing is really going to be great um not, no choice that we can make now is going to be one we're going to be totally happy with but at least this is one where we you know um you know rip the band-aid off now as opposed to just doing it later i mean it's already later um so i i i ultimately supported the decision to leave but it does seem that there were some 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 people that got really kind of screwed in that process that we maybe should have been more loyal to. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, also though, I, I think in that same
1: vein, um, I don't think the decision to, you know, assist an in, in invading army is is made lightly. And um, I I think that these people understood the, the inherent risks and the decision that they they made. And that's not to say that they should just be, you know, left on the airstrip or, you know, they can catch a ride on the,
0: the sure. Wing of the C-130, but I mean, Did, at the end of the day, I I, I agree they they took a risk, but do you think that risk was based on their confidence that we were going to do something that we said we were going to do, right? Yeah, well, and then, I mean, and then we have an obligation at that point.
1: I I wish I I
0: I can't help but kind of like laugh
1: and smile at that because if you're having confidence, especially as an Afghan, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, in in. American loyalty to um, you know s- small subsets of populations in in countries that they're targeting for foreign policy you evidently haven't been paying a ton of attention because this is right out of the standard sort of American playbook um, sure. we've done this time and again we did it in Iraq we've done it in Syria we've done it in um, in um, in South America where we. We back these groups and then when they're no longer convenient or useful, um, we let them go. I mean, that was that was the the Bush senior, um, you know, terrible mistake that he had had made in, in Iraq was telling all of these people that, you know, he was going to have their backs against Saddam um, and and not actually coming through on that, letting them get slaughtered. So I, I I don't think that there's an easy answer. And as I said, at the outset of this episode, I. I support whatever capital needs to get put forward to get people that want to get out out. Um, I think that they're in a difficult situation because what's been exposed um, in these last few days with this uh, like sort of shock and awe uh, recapturing of all the major uh, cities in Afghanistan by the Taliban is that, um, you know, the Afghan government, um, the officially recognized Afghan government um, has been a paper tiger for a very long time um when the obama surge ended and troop numbers started to dwindle uh we've been hovering between like 5 and 3000 troops in in afghanistan um and it's an enormous country we haven't been exerting legitimate military supremacy in that country for a very long time um ultimately it was it was air support and these small special operations groups that were doing any work whatsoever that was you know direct combat and um those were, were, you know, targeted based on priority. So if, you know, there's this big Taliban convoy that's moving around, I'm sure you're going to hit it, but they very quickly adapt. And so the Taliban has spread out. They're very good as a guerrilla force um, over the last 20 years and uh, has have captured most of the functional regions in, in Afghanistan, especially in Pashtunistan. And, um, you know, them rolling into uh, Kabul as a, as an organized force, um, was sort of just the the last domino in a very long series that have been falling for for years now. Um, so I think much. My point there is to say that I think much of uh, you know rural Afghanistan and um, Pashtun populated areas particularly have been under Taliban control for quite a long time. And I know like up in the northeast, um, the Tajik. Uh, groups have sort of maintained control of those areas to varying degrees for almost all of this last 20 year 20 plus year occupation um it's a fractured country and um i i hope that we were giving opportunities all all along here for people that wanted to get out that supported us to get out um i think biden's call on congress to approve that or whatever is is absolutely insane as well but Um, You know, some of this is just, you know, politics is normal.
0: Uh, You had talked about or referenced this idea of of wanting to have have legitimacy, the Taliban state in Afghanistan, wanting to have legitimacy. Um, I I had seen earlier where China's foreign minister uh, had expressed uh, China's willingness to work with the Taliban, saying um, China respects the right of the Afghan people to independently determine their own destiny and i think that was supposed to be a contrast between well you know as opposed to the puppet state that america created this uh this this bunch of taliban people coming in and taking over <laughs> against the will of the people that's really the people determining their destiny independently
1: yeah and
0: but but that ultimately though raises um this really big question about what the state is right so you know, in the last 20 years afghanistan has provided us with two examples of how states might be formed so in 2001, we had the U.S. invade, and and they created essentially a puppet government there, and that's one way. And and then this month, of course, the Taliban took over by force, and that's another way. Uh, both are examples of some people overpowering others and forcing their will upon them, which is essentially what government is and always does. So in all this talk of legi- legitimate and illegitimate governments, doesn't this reality suggest that all government really is violent and illegitimate, but that it's just a matter of degree and whether they are accepted because ultimately the question here is are the people going to accept it and is the international community going to accept it and if they do that means that the taliban becomes legitimate right and if if anybody who takes over uh, a country or people violently um if all it takes is for a lot of other people to say sounds good to me and then they're legitimate i think that really casts doubt on the legitimacy of the state everywhere at all times. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think I I think in in broad terms for sure. I I'm an anarchist and um and I'm a I'm a right anarchist. So despite being um morally and practically opposed to state power, I also respect and want order um relative to chaos one of the things i couldn't help but think as the taliban rolled into the capital is the interesting juxtaposition between like a startup culture and this bureaucratic leviathan that the u.s has become they're in the process of you know extracting u.s troops and you can't imagine the mountains of paper and ink that that requires to get them out of there and you know close the computers the right way and make sure all the correct the emails were sent and passwords were passed on and yada, yada, yada. And all the while, the Taliban were just like, what if we take it now? Like, what are you going to do? And, you know, it becomes, despite uh, Blinken's um, constant reminders that this is nothing at all, like Saigon, uh, became of scene very uh, reminiscent of, of um, the end of Vietnam, where, you know, the the um the mask had been kind of pulled and we now see that the the actual military presence of the us had really been um symbolic uh over the last few years and um you know if the taliban are able to consolidate support from the people that they rule and um you know the the consent of the governed is a tricky a tricky term often, but in these moments, these, these you know, seed-bearing days of, of a state, I think that you really can get the opportunity to get some consent from the governed. You really can have an opportunity to exert some sort of, um, potentially, uh, some sort of change or action, something far more tangible um, with your startup government in the Taliban than you, than you could today, you know, going and arguing at the town council for um, restitution or whatever, so I, it it is an interesting time to be thinking about these questions and how how a state is born and and what gives legitimacy to a state. Um, and we're, we're going to get to see how the Taliban navigates that. I think that they thus far have done an okay job of um, you know strategically and then um, on, on on the PR side. So I I don't know what the answer is as far as As far as authority goes though i mean let me ask you a question if we live as we are today in afghanistan as um anti-government or you know pro-small government and we don't consent to the taliban rule what does that leave us
0: with yeah i think i think that means you might be killed (laughs)
1: right or what if you just you just you just live your life as an agrarian farmer building um you know growing cauliflower because you can't do opium anymore and uh you just live your life you just have your your family and your kids and your wife and you do your thing you're you, you don't consent whatsoever to the government that's now in charge maybe mm-hmm. you didn't to the republic um beforehand but w- what does that mean for you you know
0: uh can you be more specific with the question like what is it what, what does it mean for you
1: what does it what does it mean for you, Cody Cook, as the agrarian the agrarian yeah. farmer who doesn't consent and and how does that look different i guess I guess what I'm trying to drive out ultimately how does that look different than the way we live right now
0: how does it, how does it look different from the way we you and I live in the United States right yeah, I mean, I think the differences has to do with those places where the state is going to interfere, whether you like it or not, so even if you can live. of your life with no state interference, what about those places where the state is going to use force against you, uh, against your will where uh, you're, so maybe maybe it's not so bad for me, the agrarian farmer, but maybe it's not so great for my wife who uh, might be a school teacher or who uh, wants to be in the media or who um, has certain gifts uh, in in, in a corporate or business world, but isn't allowed to exercise them. and so I, I think it does matter. Um, you know, um, assuming that we're talking about someone who's rural and, and stays rural, I mean that's fine. Um, but ultimately, uh, the way that a country is able to improve its lot is through trade, through expanding markets, through division of labor, and uh, and and through I mean these sort of shared cultural and, and social and economic experiences. And I think the Taliban is going to just and in, in not in, in a different way, but also in some very similar ways uh, to the way the United States government does things is going to interfere with that freedom. Um, and so I think anybody who's able to live their life as freely as possible without as much interference, whether they're in Afghanistan, or United States, that's great, but but the state is going to interfere at different points.
1: Just to be clear. There is absolutely huge differences that my, my, my point is not yeah. so much about like the material life, but the philosophical one um, for someone who doesn't consent. Um, and and my my point in, in asking the question and the mm. thing I'm trying to drive home in this whole question of like authority and the de- you know, derivation of authority for a state is that mm. there are always going to be huge subsets of people who don't consent, don't agree, don't want to be a part of it, and can very easily continue to choose the life that many have chosen throughout you know human history of just um, you know you can you can be discontented, you can disagree, you can. Uh, you know withhold consent um, privately but I think in especially in a country like Afghanistan that's so uh, impoverished and lacks so much of the things that we take for granted here in a material sense but also in like in a political sense that like you know there are there are um, political action groups coming out to knock on your door and ask you what issues you care about in Afghanistan that you know you it's they're completely removed in many areas of this country from from politics. And so um, I ultimately, I think the way that the Taliban is going to arrive at some idea of authority and ergo work towards international acceptance is to act like a state and, you know, fake it till you make it like every other state has and, you know, form some, some, even if. Even if it's completely farcical, like you know the, democratics um, people, democratic people's Republic of North Korea or whatever, like make a constitution and see what happens, and tell the people that you know is the way or Sharia is the way or however it goes, and um, you know stick to the stick to the rules that you set out, um, and and parse it out in the localities. I just I think that ultimately. Afghanistan is probably closer to, like, a federalist's dream than than we're giving it credit for, I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense to try to rule, and I don't think you ever will truly rule Afghanistan from Kabul or Kandahar. Um, I think many of these areas are ethnically um, homogenous and not interested in, in a group that isn't their own.
0: So, I mean, to be clear, it sounds like what you're saying is um, because Afghanistan is so agrarian and uh, disconnected, uh, on some level, they might, the individual Afghani uh, person who's not living in the city, for example, uh, may may find more freedom than uh, someone in the United States. Is that essentially what you're saying?
1: No, but maybe. I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends on what your idea of freedom is. Um, uh, you know, I I don't I wouldn't I'll put it this way I wouldn't choose the life of an agrarian dune farmer over the life that I'm currently living despite my um, dissatisfaction with the U.S. state. Uh, but my my point I guess is that when we talk in terms of like the, the Taliban and authority um, and what that means for the people in Afghanistan, um, I think we have to remember that like there's nothing quite new under the sun here this has happened you know this has happened innumerable amounts of times where states change power changes hands in these various states and people find a way to navigate within the the new structure and maybe they can um you know be particularly uh, clever and, and try to exert some change in the direction that they see fit, but ultimately, um, the the longer uh, a state becomes sort of entrenched in the in the culture and and the operations of the day to day, and I think um, sort of the sclerotic outcome of every uh, every stable equilibrium leads to sort of tacit consent, and you know they'll. They're going to face a ton of upheaval in that country one way or the other because it's extremely artificial what they're trying to do in, a, in a orders of magnitude more than even the U.S. where federalism makes a lot of sense in maybe the late 17, early 1800s. Uh, these, these are ethnically homogenous cultures that are stuffed into a box kind of like Iraq, which at the time was referred to as like a boiling pot that Saddam was the cap on because there's these these groups with huge sectarian stripes that date back tens or hundreds of years that um, are not going to be solved because the Taliban say so.
0: So, I mean, it, 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 it's possible that, that I've missed a little bit of the, of the force of what you're saying, but um, just as kind of t- maybe try to camp out here just for a, a minute, um, there are these, you know, um, Kind of libertarian anarchists that are call themselves agorists, uh, who are interested in saying basically, well, we probably can't, you know, just completely do away with the state right now. But what we can do is we can choose to live our lives in such a way that we kind of help to starve the state out, that we we sort of ignore the state, and um, that is both easier and harder to do here than it will be uh, with the Taliban in Afghanistan. So on on one level it'll be easier um, because we will not have, um, maybe the Taliban is trying to exert a kind of aggressive, oppressive, violent force that the United States usually doesn't. Uh, But it also will be, uh, it's also going to be harder in one sense here because the government uh, manages to sort of touch on our, our, our lives in all these little ways that are really hard to escape. Whereas, like you said, the agrarian farmer can sometimes ignore uh, the Taliban, but but at other times, you know, his his very life may be at risk or the lives of people in his family may be at risk um, for just trying to mind their business and do what they want to do. Um, and so I, I, I think I want to emphasize the ways in which the states which all states are similar, um, but I think we can also emphasize ways in which, uh, you know, some can be more more dangerous or threatening uh, than others, and I, I think. Uh, the Taliban, you know, it, it, as much as you know, the United States uh, did some really stupid things in Afghanistan and some really oppressive things in Afghanistan, there were also things that sort of came as a byproduct of, of America's America being there that were in many ways, I would say, better for the people in Afghanistan. And some of those benefits are now going to go away because the Taliban is going to try to have increased control over the lives of these people. I mean, mm-hmm. when you say that's correct or no? Yeah, I think that's inevitable.
1: Um, I don't know what that that means in a like deontological sense, though, like what what is our duty? If we accept that. Um, I, I reject the idea that, you know, some. Some good that came from this occupation. Necessarily. Means, and I know that this isn't what you're trying to argue, but it very much is what some are trying to argue. What does that mean for us pulling out now? Um, and and doesn't that mean that we have some sort of uh, duty to to school-aged girls in Afghanistan to get them educated or something? To be completely honest, um, and from a from a strict libertarian ethics point of view, I don't care. About education in young girls in Afghanistan, in a in a policy sense, it can be terrible, and it can be something that people want to direct change towards. But uh, the one way that you can almost assure you're not going to solve that intractable problem is by parking a bunch of armored vehicles and shooting anybody who disagrees with it um, from some invading force. You know. Uh, I don't i don't know of a great example of a country that because of its um uh sort of third world status or uh you know cultural hindrances to what we would consider progress is a success story in these terms um maybe some of the more secular middle eastern states like syria or iraq um have seen more progress as governments have changed. Um, But it's. It's interesting to me that with those those liberations um, or liberalizations, rather, in these populations also comes a lot of um, state driven policies that the U.S. are completely um, opposed to. And then we end up invading and, um, you know, turning to rubble. These uh, cities on a hill. So I don't, I don't know. I I just what I do know is that we shouldn't be there. We shouldn't have been there. We shouldn't have invaded there. Um, and that every step along the way, the premise has been false or manufactured. Um, and the best argument uh, for for staying in Afghanistan or invading Afghanistan crossed the. Hindu kush mountains when uh osama bin laden did and went to pakistan so maybe we should have invaded pakistan um but al-qaeda won the war he fought against the taliban that that's all i see out of this war in afghanistan
0: well so last question do you think there's a way forward for a free or freer afghanistan
1: Way forward? Um, I mean, so in terms of freedom, I would put being an occupied state from an invading army right around the top of the list as unfree. And so I think the US and Western forces leaving um, is, a, is a positive step ultimately. Next would be that the various groups of people begin to exert their political will um, towards whatever ends that they see fit. And so if large swaths of territory in Pashtun-dominated Afghanistan are happy to live under Sharia law and um, the edicts of the Taliban, then they're going to be really happy with the recent developments. And if people in um you know the north uh under what used to be the the northern alliance are are happy under that state then maybe they uh they can declare sovereignty of that region and have their own state of um you know southern tajikistan or whatever uh but i think decentralization and a move away from Um, these artificial terms that we think of the state being is is a really important step that will probably never be taken because we're talking about Afghanistan and about the Taliban in very Eurocentric central government terms that are artificial and also very sort of specific to our way of governing and thinking about governance. And so I, I don't even think it would occur to the average afghan in Helmand province that you know if he could just get a vote in this n- next election he could feel a lot more comfortable with the state of things and I, I just don't think they think in those terms um in, in many respects and so
0: well so you've talked a little bit about sort of federalism and subsidiarity of kind of letting these decisions go down to a, a local or smaller level And I think that that becomes part of what it means to be freer. Um, But I feel like it doesn't go all the way. So, um, you know, for example, in Mississippi in the 1960s, um, you could get away or uh, white people could get away with lynching black people. And the FBI sort of got involved and tried to address that issue. Now, in that case, the federal government was uh, throwing its weight around and telling local and state governments what to do. Uh, however, they were looking out for the individual, and I think that's where that's where freedom really starts with the individual. Because you know, even if there's a a, a you know a, a segment of Afghanistan that wants to live under Sharia law, for, at least the majority do. Let's say all the men do. That doesn't mean all the women do, <laughs> or all the all the young girls do, and they don't have this segment. isn't a culture. This isn't a
1: culture that pre-Taliban gave any credence or political power to women anyway. That's, again, a very, a very westernized lens to look at the terms of Afghanistan. Women that would, that would don a burqa because of a government edict are living significantly different lives than the average Western woman. And I think we have to accept that in certain respects. The best way to win that argument for women liberation or whatever is not going to be in the way that we're doing it. It's going to be by... You know, making the argument in an international way, not starving people, not bombing people, not killing people, not exerting political force against people um, from externalities. Because as soon as these huge um, leviathan states start getting involved in um, what what ultimately, in these in these terms, are extremely small um, policy issues or or cultural issues, you're now making it a matter of. Um, you know oppositional credibility to maintain the policy despite this this leviathan force there are groups in the middle east the taliban maybe among them i'm not sure who legitimately view the us as the rome of of their uh, quran scriptures who are the antichrist or the devil the, the 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 powers of satan and so if the powers of satan are telling our women to remove their burqas what does that tell you you can, you can hear it very easily in, in evangelical terms by just changing the terms out a little bit. And so we're not going to win that argument by saying that you should let the women take their burkas off. We're going to win the argument by sending them books and trading with them and letting the merchants, you know, show up and, and a woman's driving the ship. And that's how progress is made. Progress is made through, through peaceable terms, not through, you know, uh, uh, this existential threat that we're constantly trying to lord over these people with.
0: Yeah, so, and, 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 and that's, that's all very well said, yeah. And, and I'm not saying that the way we deal with this problem is to stay in Afghanistan. I I, I ask some sort of questions, you know, do we have ethical responsibilities? Because I think it's an interesting question that people are going to ask. But, um, but yeah, I'm not saying that uh, the way we solve these problems is to stay in Afghanistan. I think that that's, uh, you know, us being in Afghanistan has been overall probably better for a lot of the women there, um, but it's still been it was still, you know, it was the wrong decision to make, right? But and, think, but about, I think, about, think about what you're saying. War has always,
1: actually, the woman who, the very first um, female congressman who voted against the U.S. entry into both world wars and was, I think, alone in voting against entry into World War I, mm-hmm. was from Montana. I can't think of her name at the moment. But she was a hard leftist. I think she might have been like, um, like a Emma Goldman light um, as far as like her political philosophy, but she argued that women are actually they bear the brunt of of war burdens overall. And, you know, that argument has been made by other people as well. And I think in some respects it's kind of goofy. But in one way, it's it's fundamentally true. These women are women of our uh, mothers and, and, and wives of men and sons who have been churned through the meat grinder for the last 20 years explicitly because of U.S. policy. And um, are now enveloped in a civil war that uh, is very much the U.S.'s responsibility. And I don't know that because some of their daughters are allowed to go to school, that's a net gain for them. Well, well, Maybe well, not, socially, not, not their
0: daughters aren't allowed to go to school, but so their daughters aren't being stoned in the streets, for example. <laughs> right? I mean, but, that, but their daughters good. are still being stoned in the streets.
1: They just have less of them or now they have less men to potentially choose from because we've killed so many sons and, and husbands.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and, you know, do you remember, do you ever see the Monty Python film Life of, Life of Brian? No. It, it's, it's kind of, a, it takes place in, uh, you know, Judea when Jesus is around. But anyway, there's a bit where you have these sort of uh, Jewish rebels against the Roman state and they're meeting in secret. And one of them says, well, what did the Romans ever do for us? And then somebody goes, well, they built roads yeah, okay, apart from the roads, what did the Romans ever do for us? Well, there's the aqueduct. Okay, apart from the roads and the aqueduct, What did the Romans ever do? Anyway. And so I, I think in saying that there have been uh, there have been some benefits that have been accrued. I'm not arguing that the that the invasion was a good idea. I do think that hopefully maybe maybe having tasted some of these these freedoms, Maybe that will make Afghanistan want it more, the people of Afghanistan want it more and less tolerant of Taliban rule, but I think we'll just have to see about that. I think what what we did ultimately was artificial, and you're right, it was not enough to make them care about about keeping the country the way it was uh, because they didn't really feel like it was their country. It was something that they were doing for us for a paycheck. so, but, but, but what I would like to see ultimate, and I agree with you, you know, Afghanistan's a different kind of country. Women have diff- are treated differently there. The political philosophy is different. But I, I am interested in, in trying to figure out if there are ways uh, that all of us um, could become more free than we are now, that we could, uh, you know, uh, desire uh, freedom and free trade um, and, you um, that we would be less tolerant of people using force against us, whether it's the United States government or the Taliban or or whomever, that uh, the individual rights uh, to bodily autonomy and uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness um, uh, would be strengthened and respected. Um, And so from from my standpoint, um, you know, we'll have to do the calculus later and see if Taliban rule or United States rule will be worse for people in Afghanistan. But but I, I'm I'm not really I'm not happy about either, and and from from a a human rights standpoint, I don't think anybody should be.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a terrible um, circumstance, and and often political order in Afghanistan's history has come from competing, um, you know, bloody-handed warlords um, with provincial mindsets who. Uh, You know rule over their their smaller communities and and i think that that's sort of the inevitable political equilibrium in afghanistan and many of these um agrarian middle eastern countries with like you know these deep-seated um um sectarian strife sorts of issues um i think that uh you know There's a, the only way to really have some sort of like genuine order in the in the way that we think about it is for people to be able to like provide for themselves in ways that they are accustomed and to not be under constant threat of um, unanticipated death uh, from whatever external power is is ruling. And so, you know, these these warlords may be the best that we can come up with for right now. Um, but, you know, th- there are two points that I wanted to address from what you said. One was the, the Roman rule in Judea and the sort of joke there. Um, but I think the fundamental difference, and it's it's a stark one, is that Rome created legitimate political stability in, in Judea, um, despite the uh, protestations, rightfully so, of, of the, many of the Jewish people. And particularly of like the the rebel groups um, of those times, there there wasn't this sort of disorder that that there is in Afghanistan now. That's that's been created by the U.S. Um, and to to the point about um, like individualism versus federalism or whatever, I think that you're absolutely right. I just think that individualism is is one end of a spectrum, and federalism is closer to it. And maybe you know warlord federalism is better than. Um, I don't know, Joe Biden saying that we're going to. We're going to liberate women or something. Um, I I just think Afghanistan has to deal with Afghanistan and Afghans have to deal with Afghans and um, as messy and terrible as it's probably going to be in the next few years, um, that outcome was uh, inevitable and. uh, You know, I just hope I just hope that the least amount of bloodshed possible is the outcome. Yeah. And and, uh, you know, we were talking a bit about uh, our, our Christian perspective on this, and that really is like my undergirding philosophy on, on my views on war. And, and you're absolutely right. I, I would love to see. Um, you know, the American and Western churches making. Real inroads. Um, in In terms of. W- outreach and whatnot to these communities, uh, Christian or otherwise in Afghanistan that are isolated and um, in need of the gospel. And uh, I think that that. That could you know, really be beneficial, too, is just not not even necessarily couching it in explicitly religious terms, but, uh, you know, churches that that reach out to even send Qurans or or Western books or. Uh, hooked on phonics or something, you know, like building a network in, in Afghanistan of, of, um. Cooperation amongst the West. Sounds like a much better uh, foreign policy to me.
0: Yeah, you know, my, my Christianity, my libertarianism overlap, but they're not the same thing. Christianity and libertarian philosophy aren't aren't the same. Um, But one thing they do have in common is they ask the question, uh, how do we make a better world without um, initiating force, without using violence? Um, and so that—that that is what I want to see happen in Afghanistan. Um, you know, obviously, I want to see the gospel in Afghanistan, um, and I'd also like to see more political freedom, more economic freedom, more freedom for women, and so on and so forth. Um, and that has to do with um, you know removing the initiation of force and. Unfortunately, we don't fix that problem by invading. Um, but I also am fearful for Afghanistan under the Taliban as well, because that's also there's also a great threat of the initiation of force there. So I uh, uh, I hope that uh, everyone everyone will will be praying for the people of, of, of Afghanistan as, as in this really tumultuous time. Um, and I hope that there's a way forward for for them to be a uh, freer and more prosperous people um yeah anyway that's about all i have to say about it it's it's a mess but i appreciate you sharing your your insight and your experience um in this situation into this uh kind of situation we're dealing with right now because uh it's it's very complicated and confusing and uh while i've got my basic philosophies it's, it's been hard for me to follow all the twists and turns not just in the last couple weeks but um just you know since we've been there it's just been such a complicated mess and um i think you had said in a previous discussion that we'd had um that there was kind of a joke uh told amongst uh you know us soldiers that that they didn't really even know why they were there that there was a sense that there was not a clear mission um and um obviously that that's that's going to <laughs> that that that's a bad sign right and you know i've i've seen a lot of um
1: a lot of talk amongst uh, former military buddies and whatnot about uh, what this means, and you know the the uh, the vanity of it all, and and I am sympathetic to that, and I think ultimately they're right. And if um, us pulling out of Afghanistan and the Taliban officially taking the reins of government is what um, elucidates that point, then um, you know that's that's maybe better late than never, uh, but. To to veterans or the the patriotic amongst us who uh, see this as some sort of like red pill wake up call, um, you know, there's been people that have been saying this the entire way through, and the truth is is that it's it's the case in every contemporary American foreign policy venture uh, of my lifetime certainly, and um, and probably arguably uh, of the post World War II period. um, You know, global military hegemony. Um, even even on its own terms, doesn't work in these sorts of conflicts. And uh, it, you only weaken your global power and influence by, by getting into these quagmires. And so it it is in vain, and it's it's terrible. And every American that's died in Afghanistan has died for nothing. And um, it's a terrible thing to hear and to say and to think, but it's also the, the terrible truth. And it's not a terrible truth that I've come up with, um, but but that is necessarily true in a military venture like this. Um, and we inherently knew it even then. Right. As I had said before, that, that there was this this um, sort of in, intuition that we weren't really understanding why we were there or what we were doing. Um, it turns out that that was actually the case right along from um, their goofball idiot truck drivers all the way to the presidents and policymakers. Um, we weren't going to remake afghanistan in our image nor were we going to do that in iraq or syria or libya we weren't going to uh, create women liberation movements we weren't going to make the world safe from terrorism we've we've maybe only done the exact opposite of all of those things um inevitably and maybe the women's liberation is is just the next major domino to fall and maybe that goes even more um to to uh, you know strict taliban policy in response to The the Satan forces recommending it and so, you know, it just again is another another hash mark as to why we need to keep our military out of these ventures um, and keep our our blood and treasure here in the US doing functional, cooperative, innovative things instead of trying to kill people into submission. Um, Or, you know. Forces forces not is not a a, a net good ever. in in these in these sorts of uh, arenas, as far as I'm concerned, and. um, You know, I. I
0: don't know. Yeah, obviously, invading Afghanistan and then telling them that they should want certain things didn't make them want it. (laughs) Right, right. And it's never going to. And we need to stop it. Yeah, no, John, I appreciate your uh, your time. And so. Antiwarwarvet.com dot com is still in existence, even though you're very busy being a dad and everything else. I, th- I, I
1: think I'm still paying
0: for the domain. Yeah. Um,
1: and if I'm not, it might be like dot wordpress dot or something. Um, in the next few years, I'm hoping to like get back into being a productive writer, and um, you know, I'm trying to keep my goals a little bit more manageable. Um, I'm not really doing the uh, the Instagram page anymore, but anti-W War Vet is still live. I just am not active on it. I still lurk Twitter a bit. Um, but if you want to get in touch with me, um, anti-W War Vet at gmail is a functional email I still respond to um, and uh, yeah, hopefully I'll have some some news for you one way or another eventually, or maybe we'll do that podcast about nothing um, and uh, we can talk more there.
0: Cool. And antiwarwarvet.com is still up, uh, needs needs some new posts, but hopefully people will check in and see what is there and keep up, yeah, cool. uh, keep up with it to see if there's any new updates. All right. Thank you, John.
1: Yeah, thank you, Cody.